sufferers, <laughs> yes, uh, fellow observers on the great vast stage of humanity, life, pursuit of uh, Whoopi, and all the rest of it, and up there, hold it just long enough to sustain dramatic interest, keep the troops calm. Oh, by the way, at the conclusion of today's session, there will be a full field inspection, including tent pegs. Hello, test. Hello, hello, hello there. <laughs> yes, fellow travelers along the yellow brick road of life. By the way, how many victims are there among us today of the Oz stories? Speaking of the yellow brick road of life. Do you recall do you recall the yellow brick road and what it symbolized what it stood for uh, now 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 wait a minute don't 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 panic there just just a minute this is not a pro Judy Garland show as a matter of fact it could be defined as an anti Judy Garland show who clearly and def definitively softened the impact of the Oz stories on the poor unsuspecting children who grew up under them now if, if I, re of course, I, re I, have, I have fantastic memories of the Oz stories. I think the reason the Oz stories made it with kids who read them, and I don't mean saw them in the movies, but who read them, was because Frank L. Baum, who was the guy who wrote these things, dealt with real life, but he dealt with it in a in a fantastical form. In other words, he fantasized upon the the real life things that we all know. For example. Everybody in Oz had one ambition, to travel the yellow brick road to the Emerald City. Now, <laughs> now along the way of the yellow brick road, there were countless perils, like there was a field of poppies. And if you got hung up in this field of poppies, forget it. You were on a... Like a, like a binge throughout all eternity. You know, he just played little things like a... In fact, do you remember that they found the cowardly lion asleep in the field of poppies? He was a hophead. Uh, yeah, it's, he'd come along there and suddenly he found... You know what they make out of poppies, friends, you know. That's not the drink of the generation. It's something else. The official drink. What is it? Which, what is the official drink, friends? And don't holler bathtub gin. I mean, it's a, it's a very definite official drink. Well, now, the reason that the Oz stories have persisted is because, you know, this is one definition of life itself. People traveling along a giant... What's what's going with this microphone? It's just too close here. There, there. How's that? Is that better? People traveling along a yellow brick road looking for the Emerald City. Now, when they got to the Emerald City, do you remember that? The city was supposed to be made of all emeralds. Beautiful. The streets were of emeralds. The houses were of emeralds. Even the curbstones were of emeralds, and the trees. It was unbelievably beautiful. And so Dorothy, the Tin Woodman, the Cowardly Lion, and the Scarecrow traveled on that long road on their way to the Emerald City. And as they went, they built up these fantastic images of what the, what the Emerald City would be like. They traveled through the, the, the land of the Munchkins, the land of the Gillikins, the land of the Winkies. I will award you a brass figligy with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of the fourth country 
it was one of the underdeveloped countries of Oz because they never talked much about it, but Oz was divided into four countries. The Winkies, the Gillikins, the Munchkins, and who else? Well, they traveled along the yellow brick road, and then as they got closer and closer and closer to the Emerald City, closer and closer to paradise itself, there it stood on the horizon, gleaming, majestic, beautiful, composed of the purest, the most rare of all emeralds. And the sun shone down upon it. This was what all of mankind had been after since the very beginnings of time itself. The Emerald City by George. <laughs> and right at the very gates of the Emerald City, the cowardly lion began to chicken out. Do we really want to find this? Do we want to get in there? And Dorothy says, no, forward, onward. And the Tin Woodman, whose chief problem was the fact that he had no heart, said, Yeah, let's get inside the Emerald City and maybe we can make a buck or two. <laughs> that was the Tin Woodman's problem. But the Scarecrow, played by Ray Bolger, whose difficulty, of course, was that he had no brain, proceeded to use these non-brain to produce a series of non-sequiturs. Uh, it's pretty, isn't it? He said as he stood outside the gates of paradise itself. And then Dorothy, taking charge of the party, said, Forward into the Emerald City. Oh, and the gates opened wide. And there they stood on those majestic streets that mankind had been searching forever and ever and ever. And it was even more beautiful than they had thought. It was beyond description. But it wasn't emerald. There was not a trace of an emerald anywhere. In spite of countless myths and legends that had grown, the Emerald City was not emerald. Fifteen minutes later, they are in the palace of the wizard. Wizard sat upon a high throne, high overlooking all of mankind. The cowardly lion quailed and quivered before such majesty. Yes, the tin woodman looked with a cool, appraising eye, as befitting one with no heart. I wonder if I can work a deal with this guy. He's in like Flynn. Maybe I can work something with him. And the scarecrow just stood around and picked his ears. Dorothy said, How come, oh wizard, the Emerald City is not made of emeralds? And the wizard looked down for a moment, as though contemplating whether or not to tell her what the gaff was. And then finally he said, Because you are not wearing emerald sunglasses. Here, and he clapped his hands, and three servants appeared immediately, bearing emerald sunglasses, which the tin woodman put on. Dorothy put on her nose. The scarecrow put on his brainless head. 
and the cowardly lion strapped over his mane and his ears. And they looked about them through the green glass of those cheap spectacles. And sure enough, it was all emeralds now. The Emerald City was beautiful. It was green and translucent and shining like the veritable forest in the sun. Yeah, yeah. And then Dorothy took her sunglasses off, looked up at the wizard and said, You're a phony. And he smiled and said, That's right. That's right. But are you sure you want to know it? Da 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 da. Da 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 da. You are a humbug. He said, "You have your choice. You can wear the green sunglasses or not. Just take your pick." Wow. Now you see the problem there. Now that that you see there, of course. Now don't put that down. No, no, we've got to have that. And uh, while they're contemplating their navel out there, uh, the cowardly lions among us, the uh, tin woodmans among you know. You notice he used all three types of mankind: the guy with no brains, the guy with no hearts, and the guy with no guts. Speaking of the gutless, it's time for a commercial. Well, you know this this image of life as a road. You know this this image of of existence as some kind of a long trail that takes you somewhere and no one quite knows where, has persisted since the very earliest days of literature. What do you think the Iliad was about, Mike? Uh, the Odyssey was even more uh, was even more a concept of somehow searching, looking, going, and by George you'll find it. I, I believe, no, I, I really do, I, I, I firmly believe that the automobile plays a far greater role in the mythology of 20th century man than he'd ever even uh, contemplate, uh, or want to, really, as a matter of fact, that, that the car represents a search for that Emerald City. That car represents a search, even if you never take it. You see, this is what Dorothy said in one of the later volumes of, of the Oz story. She says, well, you know, the best thing, somebody was, uh, she met somebody in the land of the Gillikins, one of the, one of the wicked witches or something, and the wicked witch says, I'm going, to, I'm going to the Emerald City. And she said, no, the best thing is to think about going to the Emerald City. Don't go to the Emerald City. And the wicked witch says, what do you mean? She said, you'll find out what I mean when you get there, and then it will be too late. And so the thing, of course, uh, about the automobile is not where you go, but the fact that you can go, the unimaginable things that you can go to, uh, the, the yellow brick roads. I, I suspect, you know, Mike, that if one day we took one turnpike, I don't care which turnpike it was, some turnpike leading from uh, one junkyard to another junkyard a thousand miles away, uh, through fields of wasteland and swamps on the way. And if we painted it gold, just painted it with gold paint, just, you know, took old cheap gilt paint and just took great big sprayers and you went a thousand miles an hour and you just painted the whole thing with gold and you had a gigantic silver arrow pointing 
towards the end of the turnpike, and all it said was, that way. <laughs> and you charged them $5 a mile on that toll pike, you would have a traffic jam that would stretch from here all the way to Bangkok. Searching for the Emerald City. Each one of them sitting in their Mercury Monterey, their Buick Electra, their Ford Mustang, riding the wild plains of desire, searching for the Emerald City. Oh, man. <laughs> and, of course, they'd be complaining all the way. And they'd be stopping off at these, the, uh, naturally, the first thing that w would happen, the minute they got out of the yellow brick road, searching from the Emerald City, someone would say, I wonder where the next Howard Johnson's is. <laughs> and there would be somebody in the back saying, eh, I gotta stop, oh wow. And the old lady turns around and says, why did you say that just before we left? Why do you wait till now? There's not another stop for another 45 miles on the way to paradise. I wonder if somewhere up there in heaven they have clean restrooms up there and friendly servicemen who clean your windshield with a smile and who always top it off with high-octane gas that never causes corrosion of the valves, rattling of the valve springs. I wonder if heaven is that way, eternally air-conditioned, with the sound of heavenly music playing on and on and on and on and on and on. Non-obtrusive music, of course. Music that fills the needs of all. The non-music lovers, the music lovers, and just the lovers walking around, scratching and digging. Yes. And there, somewhere in that great Howard Johnson in the sky, 28 flavors will be available at all times. 24 hours a day. And the fried clams will always be as fresh as a daisy. Yes. And then when you get a little tired of that, you can go out in your Ford Mustang and drive on and on and on and on through the great clover leaf of all existence itself, searching for that one final definitive turnoff that will take you to forever paradise. Hey, that's a romantic show here, crying out loud. Can you imagine driving along a turnpike and and, uh, and uh, the signs? You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I had, I had a funny feeling, though, on turnpike one time. Most people who are turnpike drivers, you know, have only driven in, you know, Pennsylvania turnpike or the Jersey turnpike or the Indiana turnpike, for crying out loud. I mean, <laughs> the Indiana turnpike never touches Indiana at any, at any point just hops right over it. That's one thing about the turnpikes. They have made it, they've made it possible for us to completely avoid our country. Completely. Uh, you get on the Ohio turnpike, and I'll guarantee you, you won't see Ohio. You just whistle along that concrete road, Howard Johnson after Howard Johnson, and all of a sudden it says, Indiana turnpike. You didn't even know you left Ohio. And then it says, Ohio turnpike. And then it says, Iowa turnpike. And the next thing you know, you're in the Pacific. You have not seen one single house or a blade of grass, one human being. You know, I'll tell you, you know, that's, that's the, the desire to shut out 
the show. Well, just, just two things I must say before I get all completely involved in this, and before we get too involved in this, a time for a quick whoopee here. Yeah. Well, you want to hear about that that crazy turnpike episode I had that was not in America. How would you like to ride along a turnpike? And uh, it's a big eight-lane turnpike, you know, a real turnpike. Now, there are some turnpikes, you won't believe this, some turnpikes in the world that have no speed limit. Now, this is not a U.S. thing, but this is outside of the country. No speed limit at all. And I am going along in this little car. It's one of these little German cars, you know, that you kind of wind up on the back, little thing. This going. And about every 30 seconds, I'd hear this coming up from behind me. And I'd see the rear end of a Ferrari 4.1. Just And the car would rock in the wake. And then I'd hear another one. And Aston Martin goes past. I'm on a turnpike beyond all turnpikes. I come to one of the big signs, you know, the big green signs they have that say Harrisburg Exchange, Cleveland Exchange, Chicago Exchange next. How would you like to see an exchange that says Switzerland? Switzerland, Italy, Bavarian Alps. How would you like to see an exchange like that? Make a choice that way. Take the Switzerland exchange. Turn off and go to Italy. Turn off and go to Bavaria. Well, I saw such a sign. And I looked at it and I said, gee, you know, these things are fab kind of fabled in our mind. But the fable idea of the turnpike as the final reaching out, the final getting away, I think has not yet even been scratched in this country. There was a piece in the New York Times the other day about new architecture. This connects with it. I think, I think one of the things we want out of our turnpikes is an obliteration of the countryside. Nobody likes to... Can you imagine riding through a turnpike and you're going through junkyards and stuff just like on, in real life, you know? You're going along and you see hot dog stands and people walking around and scratching and you see guys going in and out of cleaning shops and all that and you're on a turnpike. This is not a turnpike. You wouldn't want to pay for that. You just wouldn't want that. You want nothing but a kind of blandness on either side. Because I think part of the turnpike drive is a drive to obliterate the place from which you're trying to escape. And there was a piece recently in one of the newspapers about new architecture. And this uh, guy from Columbia got up and he lectured a, a whole group of architects. And he says, you know what you've been trying to do in the new buildings? You know, these glass, chrome uh, aluminum buildings that they're building in Chicago and Los Angeles and New York, these, these big glass boxes, you're trying to create a perfect atmosphere. And he said, you know, years ago, there, you, there was an idea you could do that architecturally. A perfect atmosphere in that the walls were the right color, the temperature was always correct, there was always soft music playing, and the people who came up and down in those elevators, those automatic elevators, we're entering literally paradise itself. No trial, no tribulation, no sign anywhere of dirt scuff marks. At no point did human frailty ever enter. No blood on these walls. No places where guys had scratched their initials 
and other people have lived and died, fist fought and loved and disappeared from the world that they knew. A perfect existence. No future. No past. No today. No night. No day. Just soft, eternal music playing at three in the morning. Do you know you go into some of these offices in midtown Manhattan, midtown Chicago, midtown Los Angeles, and in all the offices and the hallways that have been emptied of people for hours, music still plays? Are you aware of that? It plays on and on. Even though the people have gone, music never stops. And the air conditioning turns off and turns on. And the water coolers hum and then grow silent and hum and grow silent. And the stainless steel elevators stand darkened and occasionally make a trial run by themselves just to make sure that the cables are still working. The building is performing its function. And somewhere on the 28th floor, machines with tapes in them, transistor banks and decks of meters continue to process data automatically, 24 hours a day, turning off, turning on by themselves, connected to machines, blocks, miles, continents away. Back and forth the information goes, and the Muzak plays. The machine is functioning. All in the darkest of night, and not a single living human being for miles. You didn't know that, huh? Well, that's right. That's the truth. I'm not inventing this. And and the, and this 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 professor from Columbia said, "Do you know what's happened in these new buildings?" He said, "None of the people today are happy in them. They have taken." hundreds and hundreds of psychological tests and they found that the people are vaguely uneasy they are not only vaguely uneasy they're distinctly insecure because they are beginning to sense that heaven itself exists far longer and beyond the people who are in it that they have no meaning anymore no meaning at all and his his one final poetic statement was he said you know that in some of these buildings in places like New York and Chicago, places like Los Angeles, that the distant sound of an automobile horn, the distant sound of a squeal of brakes, the distant sound of a clap of thunder becomes as beautiful and as rare to these inhabitants as the sound of a whippoorwill singing at twilight. The sound of a mockingbird calling from a distant tree, and they listen for an auto horn, a crash of brakes, or a clap of thunder, to know that there is an outside world. Yeah. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, don't mean maybe. I'm scaring the daylights out of you here. Well, there are a few things scarier than... Uh, well, of course, you, I, I, again, I must, I must say that perhaps I shouldn't be telling you trade secrets. Are you aware that in this country there are today television stations and radio stations that operate 
independent, completely independent of all human thought and action. Are you aware of that? I'll bet a lot of people don't know that. I bet many people do not know that there are several experimental, totally automated radio stations in this country which grind 24 hours a day, just grind stuff out. Voices jabbering, people telling you the time of the news and the temperature, getting all excited over the latest big hit record, and there isn't a single man anywhere to be seen. How do they do it? Well, you'll find out. There's a television station, for example, in Pennsylvania that broadcasts night after night, day after day, 24 hours a day, the image of people walking around, doing things, loving, fist-fighting, galloping down streets in, in western towns, guys herding after the, the, the great thundering, roaring push of, a, of an enormous steer herd. This going on all the time. Not a single man there. It just does it all automatically clicking, turning off, buzzing, humming, and then at the end of the day, it plays the star-spangled banner, which I think is a kind of a nice touch. Well, this radio station right here, which will identify itself at this point, has not yet gone completely automated, but listen carefully. You may hear the clank of machines in the background if your ears are sharp enough. <laughs> now, now, uh, uh, I suppose I suppose this idea of the road as life itself uh, is as is as fundamental as to as to think of how do you think of the universe? You know, a lot of people think of the universe itself as as some kind of a peculiar road. Uh, they do. Uh, how do you think of uh, your own life? You know, people think of their lives themselves, the, the life you live, as a kind of long uh, yardstick or a sort of uh, strange, flexible, uh, ephemeral tape measure. And you're, you're moving along this funny tape measure, you see, and you come to each inch mark. Now, now what this tape measure measures, uh, where it goes, is there an alpha and omega to it? No one quite knows because no one can remember not being. <laughs> We're getting into something here that, that could scare the daylight. Nobody can remember not being, so hence they can't conceive of not being. And so it, it goes from, from who knows what, alpha prime to omega prime. Uh, and and this, uh, this, this, this concept of the road is, is uh, I think, indigenous and part and parcel of our, our total experience as human beings. Total experience. That, that a caveman... You, have you ever thought of how a caveman looked at the world? I mean, I mean, a genuine early man. I'm not talking about the movie version of an early man or uh, Walt Disney's version of an early man uh, via the World's Fair. Uh, Walt Disney's early men just looked like, uh, you know, kind of like uh, uh, grumpy and smiley. Uh, <laughs> the seven dwarfs in bearskins. It wasn't quite like that. <laughs> that, that. That the early man peering out uh, peering out of that dark cave with the wind howling through the woods, uh, with with those with those great gray clouds scudding over his head, looking out over the rippled waters of an ancient lake, his eyes red, peering into what was totally inexplicable to him. He did not know even what a leaf was. 
You know, there was a time when nobody even knew what rain was or water. He didn't know what the sky was, or the earth, or the soil, or his even, his even life itself. He looked and peered out and saw that earth rolling in great waves as far as he could see. And then the very first one that had the idea, it was the beginning of man actually, and the end of the animal. If I could get over there on the edge where that gray stuff that he is referring in his terms to the sky touches that dark line there he is referring to the horizon if I could get there then I would get away I would get away and he came out he came out and began to grub his way along that rocky shore past a giant clump of trees through a valley and up a long hill and the others saw him go and watched uncomprehending and he never came back he never came back and then another one tried and he never came back and then a third as generation after generation went by and we're still heading out. We're fitting out Mariner 9, I understand. And in Mariner 9, two people will be inserted to head out beyond the edge, just beyond that rim where the blackness touches the light blue. And maybe he'll get away finally. Just possibly might. And if he doesn't come back, we'll send four more. And we'll try to go even further. On and on. That fantastic road. That yellow brick road. That reaches as far as we can comprehend. And then continues on. Which is what frightens us. And lures us on. To that emerald city. scary, huh, gang? <laughs> we'll have to uh, bring them back to Earth with a couple of quick, prosaic commercials. So long, men. <laughs> yeah, gee whiz. How much time do we have in here? Oh, ten minutes? Oh, we can go all the way. I haven't even hit the, I haven't even started on this, this problem here. Whew. That was scary, you know. <laughs> be careful, you know. Just, just be careful. Uh, 
Uh, I guess the reason the the reason that I brought this up. Listen, do you think uh, it's funny? Uh, you know, when you, when you get too close, uh, this is something I must say uh, here at this juncture. I suppose it's it's uh, kind of off, uh, kind of a little too personal, maybe. But uh, you have to always maintain a wall between people and the world. You know uh, that that have you noticed when you when you begin to deal or you touch even hint hint just hint when you hint on or or just skip over whatever it is that drives all of us and I mean far and above and beyond little things like ambition to own a new lawnmower uh, to buy a new car I'm talking about what it is that drives us on everyone gets vaguely embarrassed and confused <laughs> everyone I, I, I'll, I'll guarantee you I just know I'll bet there were at least a thousand people listening to that Last sequence there, who suddenly got very nervous and said, let's turn it, turn that nut off, will you? <laughs> yeah, as long, it's true. And, and, and I, and I feel it myself. You know, there's, at a certain point, when you go too far, you, you get the feeling of turn that nut off, meaning you, you know, because you know you can't escape yourself, no matter how hard you try. No matter, uh, you know, no matter what you do, no matter how famous you get, no matter how big a star you get to be, no matter how far you go and whatever it is you're going to go in, you, you, you just know eventually there it is. There's a kind of wall. Uh, this is sort of thing, and, and, and you, you're just not going to go beyond it. Now, what am I dealing with here? I don't know. I think it is this thing that causes religions, and probably are what religions are about. It is this thing that causes, uh, oh, uh, philosophies. It causes suicides. It causes people to paint pictures and write fantastic symphonies. Believe me, the man sitting there, driven by this thing, driven by it. He just, uh, uh, some people, of course, are fortunate. They're closer to the animal. They're much closer to the man who stayed in the cave and never even bothered to look out at that horizon. They are the fortunate ones, in a way. Yes, they are. And yet, on the other hand, the man who decided to go out and travel past that long lake and through the valley, beyond the trees and up the hill, he's fortunate beyond all of them. Because he went. Because he wanted to see. And because, and most importantly of all, he felt. He felt. He felt something that the others only vaguely suspected and usually beat down and pushed aside and felt, stop, I'm, I'm too old for this. I'm too smart for this. I'm too young for this. But somewhere one man said, I've got to go. I've got to. And what did he bring back? A piece of rock, a story, Marco Polo. This is why Marco Polo is one of the great characters of all time. He brought back a whole new world. He brought back emotions, smells, sights, and scenes that no one had ever even guessed at before. And there will be Marco Polos of the future. Can you imagine the first man that comes back from the moon? 
and he just stands there on the Ed Sullivan show. Flashed from coast to coast, from continent to continent via Syncom. And all he could say is, there just some things you can't talk about. I can't tell you. It was just rock, just soil. But it was the moon. It was the moon. So don't put it down. <laughs> I don't know what is this. What is it? It must be because it's... <laughs> I got everybody in tears here. <laughs> Especially the sales department. Let's give them a couple of quickies here, friends. Oh, my. And we've only got a couple of minutes here. How, mu how many minutes, Lee? Five minutes? All right, all right. Now, now, now listen to this, this, uh, this beautiful piece of... Uh, you see, you know, we're torn by two things. I mean, all of us, really. We're, we're torn by the desire to tell that guy to come back out of the rain and don't go. It's silly. And we're torn, we're pushed and propelled on the other side of us to tell him to go, man, go. And we don't know which we really want, because I guess what we do, ultimately, is want both. We want to stay in the cave, and we want to go to Saturn. And we don't quite know what we want to do. Uh, there was an Irish poet. Uh, just, this, is, this, is, this, is, this has to have music behind it. There's an Irish poet, Lord Dunsany. Here's what Dunsany said about it. Humanity, let us say, is like people packed in an automobile, which is traveling downhill without lights on a dark night at a terrific speed and driven by a four-year-old child. The signposts along the way are all marked progress. So I'm not alone, Lord Dunsany, an Irish poet. All marked progress, downhill on a dark night, I could have added in a rainstorm, driven by a four-year-old child with a bright smile. <laughs> this is not the stuff they're used to out of this, the happy pot on your dial. Well, uh, let's give them a tiny cork there, a little life raft to keep them bobbing afloat in the world of the here and the now, the commercial world. Hey, hey, how much? That's it, five minutes. Oh, we're doing pretty good here today. Uh, the, the, trouble, the trouble, though, that troubles all of us. You know when I say the trouble, you know what I mean. It's funny how many people will, 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 will try to be obtuse and say, Oh, what, is it, what do you mean, the trouble? The rent you mean? Is that what you mean? Oh, no. 
You can't chicken out. You look me right in the old eyeball, and when I say the trouble, you know exactly what I mean. It's the troubling of all of us. It's the thing that made Beethoven right. It's the thing that made Goethe right. It's the thing that made uh, the Egyptian pharaohs, Rameses, build a pyramid as high as the sky. <laughs> it's always been with us. Have you ever been at Stonehenge? Well, I've been at Stonehenge. And you walk around and those great slabs of stone all arranged in some peculiar formation, all standing up looking at the sky, and that's a peculiarly forbidding sky there. You know the trouble was there. The Easter Islands, you see great stone faces staring out eternally to sea. The trouble was there. You go down a main drag in a street in, in New York, in Indianapolis, and you'll see a general sitting on top of a bronze horse, his finger pointed at the sky, the trouble. And way up on top of a building, the Chrysler building somewhere, there are gargoyles. You know that? Up on top of the Chrysler building, probably the most modern of all edifices. Perhaps not architecturally, but certainly philosophically. There it stands, a tall finger reaching for the sky, and atop it, stainless steel gargoyles looking out to sea. Just like the granite gargoyles carved by sweat and blood and chisel out of stone at Notre Dame, staring out over ancient Paris. The trouble. The trouble. What is it? No one knows. Everyone thinks he knows. By morning, I'll be knee-deep in tracks from 5,000 sects, each one contradicting the other. But yet, each sure it has the answer, the reason, the raison d'etre, as the French say, the reason for existence, the reason for life, the why. Why? 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 Well, who knows why? Who knows? <laughs> oh, man. You go to Rome and you see, I guess that's what happens when you travel too much. You begin to have a picture that's a little too broad. I I uh I was in Beirut one time, Lebanon. It's a scary feeling to go up into the hills of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, mind you. And to go up through the cedars of Lebanon and come into Baalbek, the most ancient of all remainders of past lives. You stand there and there it is looking out to the Mediterranean. And people are still walking around, riding camels and burros and Mercedes. But still, it looks out to sea, those stone faces, those great carved idols. Way far up in the frozen north, an Indian, probably at this very minute, is hacking out a vulture on top of a long, winding, convoluted totem pole. 
a vulture with a yellow beak and red eyes, and a great black crest of mane to forever stare out into the Bering Sea, somewhere beyond the edge where that sea just touches the sky. That's where it will be. The yellow brick road, the Emerald City, Saturn, Venus, Mars, and beyond. The galactic yellow brick road of all.